1741, a tall, slender man in a powdered wig preached a sermon to a house packed full of people. And it was the most famous or infamous sermon in American history. The effect of the sermon was so great that people in the area later reported that they, they heard so much noise and commotion coming from the house, they compared it uh, to being outside of a labor and delivery room. Uh, this sermon w- w- produced such a great effect and response from the people in the house that the preacher actually didn't even get to finish the sermon. He would say, I didn't even get to the good news part. The, the, the bad news part was so compelling, I didn't even get to finish the sermon. The sermon was a key moment in what historians call the Great Awakening, which is a, a series of revivals that swept the, 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 um, the colonies and, and Europe uh, over the course of several decades, such that tens of thousands of people became Christians in this period. Now, if, if you or I were to preach a, term, a sermon to try to kickstart like a great spiritual move in our country, we probably wouldn't title it Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But that is indeed what Jonathan Edwards titled his sermon. What's most fascinating to me is perhaps not the response, nor even the the vivid imagery of the sermon. Edwards was brilliant. He's one of the most brilliant theological and philosophical minds that the Americas have uh, have produced. He he was an avid reader, not just of theology and philosophy, but of history, of mathematics, of the sciences. He was known to take long walks and just observe nature, and, and so his sermons were packed full of these illustrations. But what strikes me most is rather the manner of his preaching. George Marsden, who wrote an award-winning biography of Edwards, says, His voice was weak, he preached from a full manuscript, he used few gestures and made little eye contact. He was frankly a boring preacher. He would preach basically from index cards, and he had this little trick where he would kind of put them up in the pulpit so it would at least appear that he was paying some sort of attention to the people that he was preaching to while he read his manuscript. Now, historians, if you know much about this, this era in Christian history, church history, you might be familiar with the, the division between what we call the First Great Awakening and the Second Great Awakening. Uh, historians often say that in the 1700s, the First Great Awakening, there was really no, the people weren't seeking a revival, they weren't pursuing it, they were just going about the regular, ordinary means of grace and their worship services, and God just came in and just did this massive work. In the Second Great Awakening, Rather, there, there's, you begin to see what, what we call the use of means, which is basically like we believe that if we use certain means, do certain things, that God will bring revival almost automatically. So you have people like Charles Finney, who was the most famous character in the Second Great Awakening, saying revival is no mystery, it's no secret, it's, no, you know, it's really not even a miracle. If you just do X, Y, and Z, people will get saved and there will be this huge revival. And so historians look at the difference between these awakenings. They look at, at Finney in the Second Great Awakening and then they look back to Edwards and see there was no sort of emotional manipulation going on like there was in the Second Great Awakening, right? He's just, he's just standing up and reading a sermon and it's producing these incredible responses. He later recounted that, that his preaching in the early years of the Great Awakening led to as many as 300 people in his town of only 1,000 being born again and becoming Christians. But Edwards would not totally agree with this assessment about the difference in the two great awakenings. He actually would say that God does use means to bring about revival, and he gave three of them in particular. He said, first, God uses preaching. There must be the the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the word of God in the power of the Holy Spirit to produce spiritual responses in people. And so he was committed to this preaching. Second, he said, was the sharing of the good news about what God is doing. Notice, he, d- he doesn't say the good news about what God has done. 
That's included in the first point. He's not talking about the gospel. He's saying, as God is doing things in your life, as he's answering your prayers, as he is, as he is giving you breakthrough with certain sin struggles and temptations and other things, you're telling people about it. You're getting together in groups with other Christians and you're sharing about it. As, as you see people that you've been praying for begin to spiritually seek or maybe come to church or read the Bible, you're telling people, you're sharing about the good news about what God is doing. The third feature, the third means that he said God uses for revival is what he called extraordinary prayer. Extraordinary prayer. Now, to be clear, Edwards did not believe this was some kind of formula, that, that people could produce revival as long as there was preaching and as long as we share about what God's doing in our lives and as long as there's prayer. He said that God has to do it. He said clearly, quote, God alone can bestow it. But he says, without the presence of these three factors, preaching, sharing about what God is doing, and extraordinary prayer, it'll never happen. These are the bare minimum. Like, they won't necessarily guarantee spiritual revival, but if they're not there, it's not going to happen. Uh, Timothy Keller wrote a book called Center Church that, besides the Bible, is probably the most significant book for, like, church planters and pastors like me and our sort of uh, theological stream to read. And I was made aware of this concept of extraordinary prayer through Keller. And so my sermon today will rely a decent bit on his chapter in that book. So if you're ever reading Center Church and you think, well, that sounds a lot like that sermon Taylor preached. I'm not plagiarizing. I'm giving credit to Keller now. This is the last sermon in what we've called our vision series, which, uh, again, is trying to just answer the question, what do we need this year? What do we need more than anything this year if we want to have a chance at seeing what we want to see as a church? And I think it's, just, it's worth pausing right there to ask, you know, what do we want to see? Several of you are new, several of you, some of you maybe it's your first time or second or third time coming. We as a church are only about a year and a half old. We started or planted this church last May, it was our, our first official Sunday. And we did that because we're looking around at East Nashville, this community that we love, and we see there's 60,000 people here and there are not many churches that are preaching the gospel and, and believing the Bible and bearing fruit and, and making disciples. And so we need more churches in this community to reach spiritually hurting, seeking, lost people. And so what we want to see, to be clear, is that God would do a work, that he would bring people in who don't yet know Jesus and, and introduce them to the grace of God in Christ, that, that he would build up Christians, that we would disciple other believers. We're not primarily about, spirit, about numerical growth, though we do pray that that will come, but primarily about spiritual growth and spiritual health. And so that's what we're after. And so we've, we've answered through these three sermons, what do, we, what do we think we need this year to see that? First was we said we need a vision of God. First and foremost, most clearly, most importantly, we need to see God for who he is and, and have an encounter with him and be changed by it. Last week, we said that we need peace in an anxious world. And if we could become, as, a, as individuals and as a community, a non-anxious presence, it would be magnetic to people who are wrestling so much with anxiety and fear and worry. And this morning, we're saying extraordinary prayer. And I, I just I want to camp out there for a second to encourage you, if you're a part of this church, let's not just make this a three-week series at the beginning of the year and never think back about it. Like, let's let these three things be themes for us this year. Next week, as we get back into Galatians uh, and beyond, let's remember these things and pray that God would do them for us. This morning, we're in Exodus 33 and 34, beginning in Exodus 33, verse 12. And... Um, I, I will say, just as a caveat, this sermon is a little bit different than the, what our, our sort of normal preaching here. Um, we want 
every week for people to walk away feeling like Jesus Christ was held up for them to look at and to learn about and to respond to uh, and to worship. And that as we see him, it would, it would change us. I hope that that happens this morning as well. But this morning is a little bit more instructional uh, than normal. I'm, I'm encouraging you for, that, that we would be a church of extraordinary prayer. And so this is, this is just a little bit different than our sort of normal diet of preaching. Um, that's your caveat this morning. Exodus 33, beginning in verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, Look, you have told me, lead this people up, but you haven't let me know whom you will send with me. You said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor with me. Now if I have indeed found favor with you, please teach me your ways, and I will know you, so that I may find favor with you. Now consider that this nation is your people. And God replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. If your presence does not go, Moses responded to him, don't make us go up from here. How will it be known that I and your people have found favor with you unless you go with us? I and your people will be distinguished by this from all the other people on the face of the earth. The Lord answered Moses, I will do this very thing you have asked, for you have found favor with me, and I know you by name. Then Moses said, please let me see your glory. He said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim the name the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he added, you cannot see my face, for humans cannot see me and live. The Lord said, here's a place near me. You're to stand on the rock, and when my glory passes by, I will put you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you will see my back, but my face will not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, cut two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be prepared by morning. Come up Mount Sinai in the morning and stand before me on the mountaintop. No one may come up with you. In fact, no one should even be seen anywhere on the mountain. Even the flocks and herds are not to graze in front of that mountain. Moses cut two stone tablets like the first ones. He got up early in the morning, and taking the stone tablets in his hand, he climbed Mount Sinai just as the Lord had commanded him. The Lord came down in a cloud, stood with him there, and proclaimed his name, the Lord. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithfulness to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Moses immediately knelt low on the ground and worshipped. And he said, My Lord, if I have indeed found favor with you, my Lord, please go with us even though this is a stiff-necked people. Forgive our iniquity and our sin and accept us as your own possession. This is the word of the Lord. All right, a little bit of context for where we just dove into in Exodus. This story is immediately after the famous golden calf incident. Even if you don't know that story, you probably know the phrase golden calf. God has delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt through these miraculous signs and wonders. He leads them out into the wilderness. He gives them a law. And he says, hey, because, because I've done this for you, I've redeemed you. You're going to be my people. I want you to obey my law. And the first, the most important law is don't have any other gods before me and don't make any images of me because I'm, I'm, I'm incomprehensible. You can't understand me. You can't make an image of me. You'll just end up worshiping the image. He gives this law to Moses on top of Mount Sinai, and Moses comes down with the two tablets of the law, and what does he find? He finds the people worshiping a golden calf that they've made out of their jewelry, and he gets so mad that he just smashes the, the tablets, uh, and we have to start over from scratch. And so here, in response to, to this whole event, to this whole golden calf event, 
God is, is sort of testing Moses and the people, and he gives them this offer. He says, go up from here. Go up to the land that I promised, the land flowing with milk and honey. I'll send an angel ahead of you. I'll give you the land. Go up and basically go up to this heaven on earth that I promise you, but I'm not going to go with you. You're a stiff-necked people. Uh, you can have your promised land, but I am not going to go with you. And I, I think it's just, this is, really isn't part of the sermon, but it's worth pausing and asking, isn't it? Would we take that offer? If God said, you can have heaven, you can have everything you've ever wanted, you can have everything you've ever dreamed of, but I'm not going to go with you. Many of us would probably take him up on it, wouldn't we? Fortunately, this is a rare right response of God's people in the Bible. The Israelites repent and they mourn. And Moses goes up to speak with the Lord on their behalf. And in his intercession, in his prayer, we see five elements of extraordinary prayer that I think are for us today. First is a humble awareness of our sin. Look at chapter 34, verse 8, there at the very end. Moses makes this admission that this is a stiff-necked people. <laughs> Forgive us of our iniquity and our sin. Keller says that gospel movements never happen without a strong note of repentance. Right? We often want to go out there and bring people in and do all these things, do all these good works, but, but they always start with this strong note of personal repentance and recognition of the ways that I have fallen short of God. And one implication of this is that spiritual renewal always starts with the people of God. It always starts in the church. It always starts with an awareness of our sin. Christians can be very good, can't we, at looking out into the world and seeing all the sin that we see out there, right? Going to the grocery store, or going to a coffee shop, or watching TV, or watching a movie, and saying that person's a sinner, that person's a sinner, that person's a sinner. We can be very judgmental of sin out in the world. And it's funny, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians says, why are you even concerning yourself with that? God will handle that. You need to worry about sin in your own house. Before we look out at the world, Christians need to look at the church and look at ourselves and become aware of our own sin. And not only that, let's make it even closer to home. Christians can be good at noticing the sins of other Christians better than we are at noticing our own sins. And often, have you ever had the experience where you listen to a sermon and you think, well, I know who needs to hear this sermon? <laughs> or when you're reading your Bible and you're thinking about how this applies to somebody else close in your life? We need to be much better, as Jesus said, at, at removing the, the plank from our own eye, the, the big tree trunk out of our own eye, then, he says, you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your neighbor's eye. But it's interesting. I don't know if, you, if you've ever experienced this sort of season of conviction of sin in your life. You know that like, you didn't produce it, did you? You didn't just wake up one day and say, I think I'm going to start being repentant today. I think I'm going to start working harder to become aware of my own sin. It's just something that starts to happen to you through your experiences, through your life, through your engagement with the Word, with the church, through prayer. We can't really just start repenting. It's not so simple. We need an awareness of sin. We need conviction. And God is the one who does that. In 2 Timothy 2, Paul is talking about some, uh, some people who are not believers, and he says, pray that God would grant them repentance. So the, the first step is not just to be humbly aware of our sin, but it's to ask that God would make us humbly aware of our sin. God, I know I'm a sinner, but I don't know how. Would you show me? Who perceives his unintentional sins? Psalm 19 asks, cleanse me from my hidden faults. We need to ask God and pray together that he would give us grace to see and then actually confess. And again, as we read from James a moment ago, not just to God. James says, confess your sins to one another. Uh, several months back last year, there was you know, reports of um, 
something akin to a, a revival at Asbury University in Wilmore, Kentucky. And one of the things that encouraged me as I heard about it, because I'm very cynical and skeptical about these things. One of the things that I heard that encouraged me was like, what was going on in the room? It was a, uh, there was a preacher who wasn't particularly noteworthy. I think he sounded a bit like Jonathan Edwards, the description of his preaching. Uh, there, was, there was typical worship music. And then people just began confessing sin to one another in small groups and reconciling in, in broken relationships. This wasn't extraordinary. This wasn't fantastic. They weren't trying to produce something. They were just confessing their sins to one another. James says, do this, and then you'll be healed. The second element, a component of um, extraordinary prayer in this text is a total dependence on God. A sign of maturity is knowing what you can and can't do. And I have a, a few neighbors in this room and in this church, and Mitch and Frank and Clint know that there's a lot of things that I know that I can't do. And so often I'll, I'll call one of them and say, hey, can you come up to the house and look at something for me? Because I'm not a handy person and I don't want to break this. I would like to think that this is a sign of my maturity, that I know what I can't do. My children, on the other hand, often don't know what they can't do. Right? Sometimes my three-year-old asks for help for things that she's perfectly capable of doing on her own, and sometimes she thinks that she can do things that she obviously can't do on her own. Spiritual maturity is the recognition that we are totally dependent on God and cannot do what we hope spiritually in our own power, like at all. We have, we have no spiritual ability to produce spiritual renewal or revival, right? This is the, the anti-Charles Finney sermon, that guy that I mentioned earlier who said, if you just do X, Y, and Z, it'll produce revival. It might produce something, but it's not going to produce true heart change. Only God can do that. And Moses says this. He says, look, you, you told me to lead the people up, but I can't do it. I need you to teach me your ways. I need to know you. These are your people. They're not my people. He says, don't make us go up into the land unless you're going to come with us. Do we think that we can grow the church by our own cleverness and not God's presence? Do we think that we can outsmart or outwork people into the kingdom of God? Do we think that if we just find the right discipleship hacks or the right sanctification hacks that we can make leaps and bounds in our spiritual journey? No, we are, we are utterly dependent on God. And personally or corporately as a church, we could have all the money, all the resources in the world, the best marketing, the best branding, the most engaging speakers and leaders, and it's all utterly incapable of producing spiritual renewal. Only God, as both Moses and Jonathan Edwards knew well, can do that. We are utterly dependent on him. Third element of extraordinary prayer is a desperate longing to see God's face. And this is the heart of it, isn't it? Moses' personal spiritual passion and desire for God comes through and it just overpowers everything else in the conversation. He's praying for the people. He's interceding on their behalf. He's asking God to go up with them, to be with them, to forgive them. And God says, okay, I'll do it, right? He says, okay, I've heard your prayer. I won't make you go up without me. I'll go with you. That should be the end of the conversation. Okay, thanks, God. But Moses doesn't stop. He's not actually content with God making his ministry successful. If Moses could have a successful ministry where God goes up with him and the people, uh, he, he's not content with that alone. He keeps praying. He wants more. And he says, please let me see your glory. Please, God, let me see your face. Let me see your glory. When was the last time you prayed like that? God, let me see your glory. Let me see your face. 
God has this interesting response. He says, I'll, I'll cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and uh, I'll, I'll proclaim my name before you, but you can't see my face, for humans can't see me and live. He says, go over there and stand by that rock, and I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock, and I'll cover you while I pass by. And Moses obeys, and he sees God pass by from, from behind. And God reveals his character, and we see this in, in chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. Let me just read this again. It says, the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. In God's self-revelation to Moses, when Moses sees God, God reveals himself in this unique combination of justice and love, of holiness and mercy, of wrath against sin and compassion for sinners that is so unique to the Bible, right? We're so used to either all holiness, all justice, wrath, or free grace, cheap grace, come on in, everybody's fine. But you get to the Bible and you see this unique combination, and it's interesting, it actually seems like a contradiction. Because God, look what he says, he says, I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I punish the guilty. He says, I, I forgive sin, but I don't forgive sin. How is that possible? How does this paradox, this, this seeming contradiction work itself out? It works itself out in Jesus Christ, who, who comes and stands in the place of guilty people so that God can punish our guilt. We are, our guilt is crucified in him on the cross, and by faith we are then forgiven because of what he did. This, this unique combination of justice and grace is revealed on the cross of Christ where he, the rock of ages, is torn open so that we can hide in him and see the glory of God passing in front of us. Do you want to see God's glory? Do you believe that, as Augustine said, your heart will only find rest when it rests in him? That true and full happiness is only in him, that he is the source of all life and joy and peace and beauty and goodness? Is, is the glory and the beauty of the world fading before your eyes? Are you starting to taste and see that the Lord is good? Are you seeking his glory? Are we seeking his glory together? Are we praying together, God, show us your face? The fourth element of extraordinary prayer is passion for the health of the church. Have you ever said, I love Jesus, but I don't care about the church? I have. This was, this was my story. When I, was, I grew up in a church and when I was a kid, I, I responded to the gospel and I became a Christian. And then I had a, several years of sort of no discipleship, not walking with Jesus, and through the ministry of Young Life, which is a wonderful ministry that is it's not a local church ministry. It's a, what we call a parachurch ministry. I had this sort of spiritual reawakening. And because in my experience, I, I saw Jesus and the gospel so clearly through this thing outside of the church, and unfortunately, sadly, saw a lot of bickering and infighting and division in the church, I said, I love Jesus, but I don't have much use for the church. Why do I need the church? And the story is longer than this, but, but at one moment, I had a conversation with a mentor of mine who said, listen, brother, if you'd come to me someday and say, I really like you, but I hate your wife, you're not welcome into my home. <laughs> the Bible talks about the church as the bride of Christ. We are the, the, the problem with saying, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church, is really that we're too prideful to think that we could, could be associated with people who are a little bit embarrassing to us. 
Jesus is not embarrassed to be associated with the church. With all of her warts and wrinkles and embarrassing factors, he is not embarrassed to be associated with the church. We can't love Jesus and hate his wife. Moses' passionate pursuit of God here is intertwined with this deep concern about the health of God's people. Again, he knows that if God is not present with them when they go into the land, it's not going to go well for them, even if things look like they're going well. Even if there's an appearance of fruit, if God is not present, it's not going to go well. This was the case with, with Edwards. When, when, when the Great Awakening started, almost everybody in, in New England would have professed Christianity, would have, would have identified as a Christian. They would have said, we go to church, we're born into this thing, right? We're, we're Christians. But there was no heart in it. It was not personal. It was, it was cold and dead. It looked like there was fruit because everybody went to church. But the church was not healthy. If we want to see spiritual renewal and revival, then we have to be passionate about the health of the church. And it will start, again, as we said, in the church and spillover, and it will start in the church as God uses people who are passionate about the health of the church. Now, what does that mean for you? A couple things. One, it means you pray for the church. I hope, King's Cross, that you, that you pray for King's Cross. And not just King's Cross, but that you pray for churches all over the city, all over the world, for the persecuted church around the world. I hope that you regularly pray for other believers and other congregations. And I hope you pray for us. I hope you pray for me. Please pray for me and pray for the leaders of our church. Pray for our ministries, our witness, for our holiness. Second, it means that you show up and serve. And I guess this is just a reminder for you all to keep doing what you're doing because you do this so wonderfully and we're so grateful that you all have clearly a passion for the health of the church, and we see that in the way that you're, you're showing up and serving week after week. So please keep doing that. The fifth element of extraordinary prayer here is zeal or passion for the salvation of the lost. Notice the progression in these elements of extraordinary prayer. First, there, there's basically two prerequisites, awareness of your sin, total dependence on God. These have to be in place from the jump, right? If these aren't here, then, then nothing else is going to happen and nothing else is going to matter. But then, once those are in place, the renewing work starts. And how does it start? It first starts on the inside. It's first personal. It's Moses asking God, show me your face, show me your glory. And then it spills out over into the community of God's people. God asks, or Moses asks, God, go up with us. Don't leave us alone. He intercedes for God's people. And then, finally, it, it spills over into the world. Moses has a concern for other nations. Look, look what he says, chapter 33, verse 16. He says, if you don't go with us, then there's going to be no difference between us and any other nation. And if there's no difference in us and any other nation, then, then what do we have to point them to? What, how can we point them to life if life is not with us? What will they see in us that they don't already have? God, how will they know you if you don't go up with us? Spiritual renewal, revival, requires a humble awareness of sin and total dependence on God. It starts with a personal desire to see God's glory. It spills out into the church, and then it goes to the lost. Now, again, because of the nature of this sermon, if you're not a Christian or if you're not really a part of our church, um, this might feel like a weird sermon. It might feel a little bit like it's not as applicable to you as normal. So, what, what does this sermon have for you? I just want to invite you, if you're not a Christian, um, let me invite you to just start praying. Just start praying and ask God to reveal himself to you, to show himself to you, to speak to you. 
and just, just keep doing that and see what happens. <laughs> and I'd, I'd love to talk to you about that if you have questions about it or, or, or anything else. Um, ask God to show himself to you. And then, church, in Luke 18, Jesus tells this parable. He says there's a, there's a little old lady, a widow, and she's been treated unjustly. And there's a judge in her town, and Jesus says he neither fears God nor cares about people, right? He, he's not a good person. He's not, he doesn't love God. He hates people, yet he's a judge. So great. Corruption in leadership is, is as old as humanity. And she goes to him over and over again. She says, give me justice, give me justice, give me justice. And Jesus says, finally, this guy gets so fed up with her pestering that he says, he says to himself, so at least he's self-aware, even though I don't fear God or care about people, I will give this woman justice so she will leave me alone and stop bugging me. And Jesus lands the plane and he says, the point is that if even this wicked and unjust judge who doesn't fear God or love people will, will do the right thing if he's pestered enough, how much more will God, who is good and who loves his people and who is utterly unlike that judge, how much more will God answer the prayers of his people? But he says, and Jesus ends this parable with this tantalizing question. He says, but when the Son of Man comes, when I come back, will I find faith? Will I find faith? Will I find prayer? Prayer is the sign of our faith. If we're not praying, we don't have faith. And I could just share with you and, and confess to you as your pastor, if somebody asked me, what would you like to do differently in the first couple of years of King's Cross? Man, I would like to pray more. It's so easy to be about the work of all the stuff that there is to do that we forget that we are utterly dependent on God. I would like, I would like to pray more, and apparently that means that I, my faith is not as strong as it should be because I'm not praying as, as much as I should be. I'm convinced that without extraordinary prayer, we will not see an extraordinary work of God. Now, to be clear, Jesus is not putting on us the pressure to pray our way into revival. There's a story in the Old Testament where Elijah, a prophet, has this showdown with these other prophets with different gods, and he's making fun of them because their gods won't respond to their prayers. And he says, maybe he's asleep. Maybe you need to go wake him up, right? God is not like that. That's not what we're seeing today. This isn't about we need to stir God up and wake him up to do something. No, God will do what he wants, when he wants to do it, how he wants to do it. But the, the beautiful, gracious thing here is that God invites us to partner with him through prayer. God is doing something in the world, and he invites us to partner with him through prayer. And so I am just trying this morning to extend that invitation to you. And here's what I'm going to do very practically, okay? In 2024, on Thursday mornings at 7.30, I'm going to come in here, and I'm going to open that door, and I'm going to sit in this room, and I'm going to pray. And uh, I don't know how long I'll pray uh, each Thursday morning, but I'm going to be here. And I want to invite any and all of you to come and join me. Uh, the, the thing Edward says about extraordinary prayer is that it's united. It's not just individual. It's as Christians pray together, we see this sort of thing happen. And so if, that, if you don't live in East Nashville, if that doesn't work for you, but you're interested in doing that, go start your own thing. Meet up with one or two or three other people and just commit to praying together. And he's, he's not another Keller thing in, in his book is he distinguishes between maintenance prayer and frontline prayer. He says maintenance prayer meetings are short, they're boring, they generally focus on the physical needs of the people, right? That's fine. We're invited to pray for those things. But frontline prayer is warm, it's kingdom-centered, it's focused on the gospel, it's focused on God's glory. It's, it's these things, right? Asking God to make us aware of, of our sin, to show us his glory, to make the church healthy, to bring in the lost. So 
if you want to join me at 7.30 on Thursdays, I hope that you will. Um, Acts chapter 1. Jesus has just ascended to heaven, or he's about to ascend to heaven, and he tells his people, I want you to go to this room, and I want you to just wait there, and, and something's going to happen. And they go, the, the disciples, with the women who were close to Jesus, I don't know, maybe 20, 30 people, and they just, it says that they were united in prayer continually. And then in chapter 2, the Holy Spirit descends on them. And the rest of Acts and the rest of, of the last 2,000 years, as they say, is history. We have a chance to, to just continue partnering with what God has been doing all these years.